I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. My name's Beth, joining you as your co-host this afternoon with Alex. So Alex, what have we got going on today? We've got a brilliant one today. We know how much everybody loves it when Colin comes out to play because Colin brings smashing Spanish history. So what have we had so far, Colin? We've had um, Don Quixote. Yes, that's correct. Spanish Civil War. Um, that's right. Is that the two you've done? Oh, Guernica. That and one Guernica, very, yeah. Very yes. popular, I that really one. enjoyed that. Yeah, and the cartoon was immensely popular as well. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was all Picasso-themed. It was it? fantastic. I think uh, uh, Steve is... Yeah, Steve. I yep. think he's done a fantastic job. I was just thinking that today. That man has made so many people so happy. He has. By he doing did. those fantastic pictures of us. That's pretty much the best we've ever had as well. I've only come for the cartoons, so I'm I'm only here for the cartoons. <laughs> Nothing wrong with cartoons. <laughs> anyway, Colin Fisher is is an amateur historian, but my God, is he good? I'm trying to convince Thank him you. to write a book, and he's like, nah. Yeah, I'll be, I'll beating something out of him for the Great War Group. So, but he's here today because we were looking for some American tack to our history for a few episodes this month, and he said, "But what if I go away and look at the Spanish-American War?" So that's what we're going to do. This is really interesting. So we're going to look at basically the last big deal, or one of the last big deals for the American Army before they then got embroiled in World War One, aren't we? Exactly. Uh... And if I can't make your hair stand up on end, if I can't make the listeners stand up and cheer and boo uh, <laughs> by talking about uh, uh, Cuba in 1898, then I have done a, a, a very bad job because it is an, an amazing story and it's so much that hinges on it. I think that's what I've really learned from it. So if I can't convey the drama and the long-term consequences, then I'm afraid even as, a, as an amateur historian, I failed. Then you quit. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Exactly. Because <laughs> it's such, it is such an amazing story. Uh, and, I, and it's not even one that's particularly well known here in Spain. Mm. And there's no reason why it shouldn't be because although you can argue, spoiler alert here, the Spanish don't win. Yeah. The, 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 some of the individuals involved and some of the, just the sheer ballsy attitudes that came out from it. There's, there's no country could be ashamed of it. So I hope, I hope I can, can 
convey some of that. And I'm afraid, again, spoiler alert, so I'm afraid uh, America's not going to come out too good from it. <laughs> no, oh, they yeah. are very baby army, aren't they, at the time? Very much. I mean, it's not yeah. as if it's an, an experienced army, but you've got this strange dichotomy between the recruits who come from a, every background and every race within America, but they're being led by guys that actually fought in the Civil War. So yeah. it's... It, and yet it's also a very modern war. We've got armored cruisers. Uh, it's a kind of, it's like a steampunk paradise because it's got all these issues to do with, uh, vintage uniforms, weapons, attitudes, but it's also been done at a speed that would have been unthinkable in the Na- Napoleonic era. It is. So let's start right at the beginning. Um, what does Cuba look like at this time? Talk to us about who, who lives there. Who, and we've got everything from slaves on plantations, haven't we, still? That's right. That's right. Um, Until 1887, slavery is still legal in yeah. Cuba. And, and then we've got all the way up to a Creole aristocracy. That's well. right. That's right. And tell who, us about Cuban society. It's extremely divided. It's exactly as, as you said. So, uh, you've got this Creole aristocracy who have been there for centuries. Uh, so they are the result of intermarriage across the centuries, across uh, racial groups. There's nothing uh, shameful in that. They've accumulated vast amounts of wealth. Uh, and by the mid-19th century, they're not too bothered about thinking, well, if we were annexed by America, would that be such a bad thing? Because basically, we sell sugar, we sell tobacco, developing a rum industry, uh, and our biggest growing market is America. That's that's a simple fact of of the matter. Uh, however, where their wealth is concentrated is in the west of the the western half of Cuba, and on the eastern half, it's relatively underdeveloped. Uh, so they would have seen up to the American Civil War, well, if we did actually become a part of the United States of America, where slavery is still legal, well, actually, it's going to be in everybody's interest uh, in terms of, well, basically wealth creation and selling our main products. So you've got that part to it. Uh, at the other extreme of the, of the spectrum, you've got slaves, and you've got them until 1887. So, uh, as I say, the, the, the thing about that is that, uh, until the Catholic Church in mainland Spain becomes involved with this, uh, campaign against slavery, well, no one's too bothered about it. It's, it's simply allowing these primary products of tobacco and sugar to be created and sold at, at enormous profit. Uh, then you've also got a growing middle class within the western part of of Cuba who are not necessarily in terms of, although they're kind of progressive in many of their attitudes, they're not necessarily thinking about independence. They might be thinking about in terms of autonomy. Uh, so, yeah, why shouldn't Cuba have a bit more independence in terms of being able to govern itself, but not in terms of, of, of independence? And then you've got a large free peasantry as well, which again, particularly working in the eastern half of the island, 
uh, and they are they've got their their, their small land holdings in which they're able to feed their family and able to have a bit of a profit in what they sell. And they're certainly very much uh, the pot, the potential recruits to any revolutionary army that's going to talk about independence in, in Cuba. And then into all this mix, you've just got Spanish because there is what's called the War of the Ten Years from the 1860s into the 1870s. That is before the period that we're talking about. And although it leads to the, can't quite call it the overall defeat of the rebels fighting for independence, they do gain, you know, a certain degree of autonomy in terms of what the, of the island can do. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, the Spanish government, to put the brakes on any kind of independent process, simply encourages large-scale emigration from the poorest areas of Spain, which tends to be up in the northwest, up in Galicia. So you've got this huge expansion, uh, and, and it is huge, uh, in terms of first-generation Spanish settlers coming into a settled colonial country, which has almost by that stage uh, up to sort of over three centuries of Spanish control, but in which it's taken on its own specific Cuban identity. So it's 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 a very very mixed country, and it's a small country. I think by the 1840s we're talking about a population of one and a half million. So mm. by the 1880s, 1890s, it's not that much bigger. And if you look at the map, it's not huge either. Uh, but there's a lot being crammed into it. So by the time we're talking about the 1880s, 1890s, it's a society with a lot of potential pressure points and points where you're going to get this fracturing of of Cuban society. So looking at the Spanish, yes, it's 300 years of empire, but we're very, very much past the peak of the Spanish empire, aren't we? So what does it Absolutely. look like at this time? What it looks like is, again, this strange dichotomy, to use that word again, but it's the best one that I can think of, where you've got... The first steam railway in Spain is actually built in Cuba because it makes sense commercially to put this technology into the island because it's all about exporting. It's all about getting these primary goods from uh, uh, sugar uh, and tobacco and then rum and getting it to the ports and getting it exported as quickly as possible. So uh, it's you have this extremely modern element to it. So you've got this, you've got steam trains put in there before they're actually put into, into mainland Spain. And then you've also got the railways and the refineries becoming targets for independence movements because they understand that if you want to get Madrid's attention, you've got to blow up some railway tracks. So by the 1880s, by the 1890s, you've got a very polarised society in which you've got a large part of the middle class talking about autonomy, but you've also got this incredibly conservative, socially and politically conservative group associated not just with the, with the cruel aristocracy, but also with large-scale mainland Spanish investment, with a lot of political uh, parties with interests in the country as 
as as well. So what I would so the way that I would describe it is you've got Havana, very cosmopolitan, uh, a very open city, a very dynamic city with everything going on. But as soon as you move eastwards, as you move out of that kind of metropolitan area with the refineries, with the railways, you're getting into uh, a lot of small land holdings. And you've also then got this growing military presence where the Spanish are sending more and more troops. In terms of frontline troops, we're talking by the 1890s, 100,000 frontline Spanish troops out of an even larger army, maybe 300,000, there to, to support it, who are building blockhouses and trenches because they are realizing that to control this landmass, which might not be huge, but it's big enough, you've got to divide it into military zones. You've got to stop the free movement of rebel bands. Uh, so in Havana, it, have a great time. It's party city. It's open. It's everything you want. But as soon as you leave that, as soon as you're traveling in the countryside, and if, if you're not from that peasant class, well, you're easily identifiable and you're at, and, and you're at some risk. So it can seem very normal on the one hand that everyone is living the same way in the cities, but you actually travel out from the cities, then you're entering a very, very different landscape. That's that's really a, a really interesting point to bring up. So obviously it's a, the Spanish-American war that we would reference it to is, you know, in an English perspective. What kind of stake does America have in Cuba at this time? Is, you know, it's a large investments in the island and has a, the, is the, U, the Cuba's largest market. Um, what, what do they have? What stake, what interest do they have in the island? Huge. I mean, huge. It is one of their largest markets for, sin, for selling finished goods in the same way that it is for Madrid as well. But for the Americans, it's also the fact that they are importing their tobacco and their sugar and their rum from Cuba. And it's massive. They've got uh, copper and iron mines there. They've got large-scale investments in the railways. They're the money guys. For Madrid, it's about taxation. For the Americans, for their business interests, it's all about having an easy access to markets and it's having an easy access to the products that they can sell at a massive profit in America. That's what it is for them. And although they're talking about, on the one hand, let's free Cuba from Spanish domination, and it kind of fits into that anti-Catholic narrative that came out in the second half uh, in the United States, which is often tied, for example, with large-scale Irish immigration into America, associating a kind of Catholic hierarchical society with one that was the antithesis of a modern American democracy. So although they're talking about Cuba uh, benefiting from American democracy, what they see is yet another black slave rebellion. Mm. So it's a huge racial overtones to this as well. Yeah. They're, they're not seeing uh, the Cuban independence movement. They're not seeing its leaders como Jose Martí uh, uh, as, as sophisticated political leaders. What they're seeing is 
they're blowing up our railways. They're blowing up our refineries. So actually all we want to do is let's get a military presence there uh, and let's make sure that our business interests there are secure. We control the political scene. And basically the Cubans themselves, although they're fighting desperately for their independence, they're not sophisticated or sufficiently developed in terms of a culture or politics to be able to take charge of their own country. So those two things run together, those business interests and what is essentially an extremely racist attitude towards going on in another independent country. So, yeah, this country does have. So before we're looking at 1898 for the Spanish-American War, but three years before that, we do get Jose Marti and his independence movement. There is a Cuban War of Independence, isn't there? That's right. You could say at least you would say three in the in the 19th century. I mean, you had a 10 year independence struggle in the 1860s into the 1870s. Uh, You've got tobacco workers in America sending funds to the Cuban independence movement to allow them to buy arms, for for example. So that's happening beforehand. And then in 1895, as you say, there's another independence uprising. And Jose Marti, he, he knows that he's walking a very, very fine line because the Spanish are doing a good job at defending their last Central South American imperial possession that has remained loyal to Spain since all the independence movements of Simon Bolivar from the 1820s and so on. And they've done a good job. They've understood before the British in South Africa the importance of denying the rebels access to food, to ammunition, just to have the support of the, of, of the population. So he knows, he knows Jose Marti that without American help, he basically cannot lead his forces to victory. On the other hand, he knows the dangers that that comes from the other side. And they've been fighting for three years and they've fought themselves to a standstill. Mm-hmm. The, 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 there is no possibility, I think, in 1898 of a, of a independent Cuban army taking power because mm-hmm. the Spanish have known that they've entrenched themselves well. They've built this whole series of blockhouses. So on the military side, they know they're controlling the situation, although they've suffered great casualties. Uh, and on the other hand, they've actually encouraged and, and actually made good their promises of autonomy for Cuba. Because of essentially a change in government in, in Madrid from a conservative to a liberal government, uh, they've actually brought forward plans for autonomy and they've got Cubans from those, these middle classes to take part in this, what's essentially an autonomous Cuban parliament, which is based in Havana, which by the time of the, of the outbreak of hostilities is already sitting. Mm, absolutely. So that's really interesting. Um, so both sides that become involved in this conflict, the, the Spanish and the Americans, um, they're really quite even in their level of proper, their interference with propaganda in Cuba, aren't they? You know, what are they, what are they saying about each other, about Cuba in the wider context? Well, well, again, I think that's, that's very interesting because, uh, our first reaction is thinking about Hearst, William Hearst 
in New York. And he's in a cutthroat battle with his main competitor, uh, Pulitzer. Uh, uh, and he does want war. And, and he's prepared to get it. And he knows essentially is that if he gets war in Cuba, he's going to sell more newspapers. So we've got that image, which is very interesting. Uh, the, the yellow press, this, uh, the New York Post and the New York Journal, I think they were. But if you travel outside of New York, if you go to the Midwest, if you go to Indianapolis, yes, you've got this split between Democrat and Republican newspapers. But what they're saying outside of New York is, Yes, there is a situation there in Cuba. However, military in- intervention is not necessarily the answer. Now, what will be the big change will be will be when the American battleship USS, USSS Maine blows up in Havana Harbor, and that will change many things. And that is the that is the impetus that will now propel America into into war. However, even then. They're still saying, well, let's wait to find out what was the cause of this explosion. And we can talk about that perhaps later. Uh, but what is undeniable, and this is what is the difference between the American press and the Spanish press, is that in the American press, you've got a very, 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 very effective proper campaign from the Cuban junta in New York, mm. who are sending out mm. their representatives to Indianapolis, to uh, the cities uh, in Pennsylvania, going to understand, unless we get our message out to the American people outside of the big cities, we're not going to get governmental support. So, as I say, on the one hand, you've got Hearst. On the other hand, you've got these small independent newspapers in in the Midwest. But the other thing is, they don't have foreign correspondents. So if they're going to rely uh, for their foreign news on, for example, the AP Associated Press, that is coming via Hearst. And so these stories of atrocities that are being propagated around America, they are appearing regularly in these small-town newspapers. Now, if you go over to Spain uh, and you you look at what they're writing, it's two different worlds. It's it's unbelievable the lack of detailed political, uh, military insight that these newspapers have. It's a it's it's a I don't know it's it's a hysteria that that has taken over. Uh, in Madrid, they set up a, a bullfight, but with an elephant. They have a bull and they have an elephant because the elephant represents America. That's what they've chosen. And so they have the bull attacking the elephant. And that's reported. That's, that's, that's the, the, the main news that's being passed around, that Spain can overcome America. Mm-hmm. I think that where the biggest area is that that, that hysteria takes over is their reporting on the Spanish fleet, in which they genuinely believe that the Spanish Atlantic fleet that are going to send out will be enough to take on the American fleet. Uh, there's just no two, is it? There's not one question of doubt about that. I think the other thing that's interesting is that the Spanish press do never pick up on the popular resistance 
to sending uh, soldiers out to Cuba. Yeah. Because it's basically, it's a conscript army that's being sent out. Largely illiterate. It's from the poorest sections of society. If you've got one and a half thousand uh, pesetas, you can buy your way out. But there's very few families that have that access to that kind of money. And those that do get themselves into huge amounts of, of debt. Uh, the Spanish army finally prohibits the families of the recruits that are being sent to Cuba coming along to the railway stations and the ports because what they're doing is, 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 is protesting. In, in Barcelona, they, they lie down on the railway tracks, the, the mothers of the, of the recruits. Oh, wow. So you do have these quite clear signs that not is all well in Spain's military preparation, but you'll be impossible to find one, one newspaper report, including the left-wing press, which was large at that time, who have decided, yes, we are going to lose, but we shouldn't annoy the military. We shouldn't give them an excuse to get involved in any kind of coup. We shouldn't be seen as anti-patriotic. So even the left-wing press do not get involved in any demonstration of basically we're not ready for this. So we've got Spanish patriotism, Cuban independence and American imperialism all about to explode on this little island. Um, We've mentioned some of the, the politics behind getting the troops there, but how are they tooled up is what we need to know next, don't we? Um, This is, this is kind of like, so the, American Civil War is the birth of sort of industrial warfare, but we're not going to see it on the scale that we are in 15 years after this. So we're somewhere in the middle. So what does fighting look like? Again, as befits any topic to do with Spain, it's extremes. Okay. So if you look at the Spanish military, uh, they are made up of this conscript, uh, conscript army with very, very basic training. Uh, who don't have shoes, who in the last weeks of peace before outbreak of war are sending messages from this high command asking for underwear. So large numbers of Spanish soldiers, frontline soldiers, don't have shoes and they don't have underwear and they don't have food. Uh, because by the time we get to the conflict, Poor level of rations are even worse because you got you got an American blockade. Mm, yeah. So this is what you've got on the Amer- on the Spanish side. Sorry, on the Spanish side, you've also got just that sheer bloody mindedness of yeah. any Spanish military unit when they decide to not budge, they will not budge. You've got an officer corps that has got. 20, 30 years experience on that individual level. You've got, I'll talk about a guy called uh, Baradere later on, but you've got guys that have enlisted up when they're in their late teens and they have had experience of warfare. They have an experience of, of, of leading men. And then you've got a high command that is very aware that their relationship with the politicians is what matters. So you've got that separation of, of interests. Now, in terms of weapons, these bootless <laughs> uh, Spanish conscripts who have don't... have got awesome use, guns, haven't they? They've got Mausers. 
Yeah. They have got the best rifle of the period. They don't have automatic weapons. They've got mountain artillery with yeah. smokeless charges. And that's going to be very, very important. So they don't have anything over, what would it be, about 75 millimeters. Mm. They don't have siege weapons. But when they open fire, the enemy don't know where they're coming from because they're using smokeless cartridges. And they do know how to use them. They're not incompetence. They've, they've divided Cuba into a series of military zones controlled by blockhouses, uh, controlled by a system of trenches. Uh, they do have enough communication. They're using uh, uh, heliographs. So they are able to communicate using mirrors across long distances. The system works. Now, if you go to the Spanish Navy, uh, before the arrival of the Atlantic Fleet, you've got basically slightly upgraded coastal monitors in to terms of what... Like, when you say Spanish Navy to me, I'm still looking at the Armada in my head. I don't, yes. know, I don't ever advance beyond a wooden ship in my head. They had advanced by then, <laughs> uh, and they had developed their skills. The problem was they hadn't invested enough. So they've got capital ships, and they've got armoured cruisers. They've, they've, they've got these, this substantial hardware. Uh, they're waiting on, uh, cruisers coming from British shipyards. They've got destroyers, which at that time are basically large scale torpedo boats. They've got them. And the Spanish have as much of a naval heritage as, let's just say, the, the British Navy at, at, at that time. Uh, they've been navigating the world since the 1490s. So you know, they've, they've got all this behind them, but they've not had the investment to look after their ships. I think that's the difference. Cerebera, mm. uh, the Spanish admiral, is ordered to take the fleet over to, to Cuba. He says, look, my guns don't fire. The, the hulls are filled. We're simply not ready. But if you ordered me to go, I'm going to go. But I'll tell you now that it's going to make no difference and you're going to lose the Atlantic fleet. Now, let's go over to the Americans. Yeah, uh, and similar contradictions, aren't there? Not quite as extreme. Yeah, they've got, they do have the more than the foundation of their world fleet, let's say, you know, in terms of let's now project our power beyond the Caribbean, the West Coast, uh, shortly before the, uh, uh, the Spanish-American War, they've, they've annexed Cuba. So we're talking about this change uh, when McKinley takes over and America is becoming this pseudo-imperial power. So they've got, they've got modern ships in the Navy, but they're not going to really fight the war. It's going to be the army. Now, the army is simply not ready. They're not ready in terms of equipment and they're not ready in terms of their leadership and they're not ready in terms of their war goals. McKinley is, is a strong presidential figure. He's got a weak cabinet, but he doesn't mean that he knows why he's going into Cuba, but he's going into Cuba in a very strong, dynamic way. He just doesn't actually know exactly what it is that he wants to achieve. Uh, so apart from the Navy, I just don't see any of them being ready. The generals like Schaffner are all Civil War era. 
they've they've got Confederate generals, people that uh, generals that fought on the other side, and in fact, in one of the first uh, opening battles skirmishes, the uh, uh, Wheeler, uh, it, it might have been uh, ex-Confederate general, as he leads his men against the Spanish troops uh, just off Guantanamo Bay. He's shouting at them, look, boys, we've got the Yankees on the run. So you've got these attitudes that have come from the 1860s. We're talking about the 1880s now, 1890s. Uh, when you look at the weapons, they are far, far, far behind anything the Spanish have got. Uh, they're, u- they're, they're using black powder charges in their artillery. Uh, their rifles are Winchesters. Uh, and this is something which the Spanish realized very early on. We know where they are because we can see them. Uh, their uniforms, they're wearing those blue serge uniforms, uh, which are suited for North America, but they're not suited for, for Cuba. Uh, they've also got logistic problems. I mean, the Spanish don't have it easy, but at least they, they've got internal lines of communication. They've got one railway line down to Tampa Bay in Florida, which is the, the, the point of departure for the Spanish, for the American forces. And it breaks down. When, 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 when they land in Guantanamo Bay, they don't have everything they need. I mean, this is a large scale operation. Uh, and they're simply not ready. They, they, they might have the battleships, but they don't have the supply ships. And there's arguments about what should be unloaded. And it takes a long time to get all, all of this sorted out. However, what the Americans do have are four Gatling guns. And those Gatling guns are going to change everything. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a, this is another example of technology. It's, but it's American sort of Civil War technology, which will actually make a huge difference in 1898. We're not talking about Maxim machine guns. Yeah. We're talking about Gatlings. We're talking about hand-cranked yeah. machine guns. These are the ones where you have to wind them round to get them to carry yes, on. Yes, yes, yes. But they work. Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. For... The Americans and the Spanish, as you've said, there are definitely problems with their technology. What actually is their, I know you've briefly, briefly mentioned it, but what's their leadership like? What's the organisation like? Do they have good generals, good admirals, and a lower level, like a junior officer level? Well, I think if we talk about the Americans, 
You've got a, a White House that insists that they have telephone and telegraph lines directly into the American field headquarters. Mm, that's so mad. We want to know 24 hours a day what's going on. This is something quite special for the president to be able to ring HQ. It's the first time. Yeah. It's the first time directly from from the White House. So they're getting status reports every day. General Schaffner, on the other hand, who is the American commander in charge of land forces, he shouldn't be there. He yeah. shouldn't be there. <laughs> One reason being he's from that American Civil War generation. And another reasons is he is going to almost die from illnesses that he picks up when he's there. He's already asthmatic. He's already obese. He struggles to get onto a horse. He doesn't know how to impose leadership. Uh, throughout the campaign, he issues orders, but he doesn't follow up. So yes. I, you get down to the middle level, I think, in the American forces. And I think this would be perhaps something that, again, would be very similar within the Spanish military is that those leaders on the ground are able to inspire their men. And not just the regular military, but we're talking about the militias that came too. Probably the most well-known one would be Theodore Roosevelt's Rough Riders. Yeah. And he will, he will play a pivotal role. It's one of these moments where you take one individual out of this equation and it will make a huge difference, as it will on the Spanish side. So I think on that middle level, you've got men capable of inspiring leadership. And I think in terms of the brigade level within the American military, you've got capable commanders. But they don't trust each other. Yeah, They don't coordinate. I mean, one, it's difficult to coordinate in the, in, in the era before uh, radio. But they simply don't trust each other. And I don't think they necessarily get, get on with each other. And mm. I think... There's a definite lack of what are we actually here to achieve? Yes, we do have to take San Juan Hill. That's fair enough. But actually, what do we do after that? What you've also got in the, uh, in the American military is a logistical system that although it breaks down at the beginning, does begin to function later on. You've got officers there that are able to load and unload a ship. You've got engineers that can repair railroads. So in terms of how do we get everything our men need at the front, yes, we can do it. Uh, on the on the naval side, you've just basically got an extremely professional naval force, but riven by personal differences. So Admiral Sampson is the uh, overall leader. On the day of the Battle of Santiago de, de Cuba, he's absent. He's gone off to uh, meet up with General Schaffner. And although it leads to an American victory, and he's not there, he's pretty pissed off. Mm. And he definitely wants to have his name put there as the leader of the American forces that led to the defeat of the Spanish fleet. So you've got those cracks there on the American side. On the Spanish side, 
on the platoon level or up to the brigade level, slightly below, you've got men that just say, we stay, we fight, and we hold. Beyond that, you've got the guys that are getting the, the, the telegrams from Madrid sending contradictory reports, and they're trying to make the best of a bad situation. But they know, they know that they cannot rely on getting support from their political leaders. So you've got the kind of governor general in, uh, in Havana, a guy called Blanco, and he's full of optimism. And he says, I would rather, you know, uh, you know, see the end, you know, g- give up my life before giving up Cuba. So he ends up giving up Cuba, but he seems to hold on to his life at the end of it. Uh, he's not going to be too damaged by this. You've got under him General Linares, who's not a bad commander, that does end up being wounded. Uh, and you've got... Uh, but who, but who is hampered by a sense of caution, who's hampered by not just knowing what's over the hill. He doesn't have full intelligence reports in the way that the Americans do working with uh, Cuban rebels. Uh, and then you've got men like Barra de Rey, who is a career officer. He's 57 years old. He is fighting with his two brothers, uh, no, sorry, he's fighting with his two sons and one of his brothers there in the front line. He's there at the uh, San Juan Hill and at Caney, which are the two principal battles. And when he draws his sword, he never puts it back in its sheath. <laughs> he is one of those leaders who never has to fire a weapon, but he is there in the front line. He's got 500 men under his command. There are 5,000 Americans at the bottom of the hill, and he does not yield. He will not budge. He has overridden General Linares' instructions because General Linares doesn't understand. He didn't understand fully. You don't build a blockhouse your defenses on the top of a hill. Yeah. You build it slightly below because that cuts out the dead ground that an, a, a, an attacking force can use at the bottom of a slope. And he set up fields of fire. That's what he's done. And the, and the Americans walk into it. And Barra de Rey, he's got a statue here in Spain. I think he was from the Canary Islands. Uh, but he's totally unknown and it's totally undeserved. The man was a hero. They, they, shattered both his legs, he was on a stretcher, and he was still commanding the last 90 Spanish soldiers holding Caney against 5,000 American soldiers for 12 hours. That is insanity. I want to ask you, this point is perfect for this question. Is there, do we see, um, and as a British person I can say this, the typical white man's arrogance about fighting uh, people with different colour skin. So is, do the Americans oh, absolutely. look down their nose at Hispanic? Um, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. They expect the campaign, which was very rapid. But, for example, they expect the, uh, the campaign to be over in a couple of days. Hmm. They expect to take San Juan Hill and Caney in two hours. Basically, manoeuvre their forces, uh, advance uh, in line, first line fire, second line 
advances through and so on, and you'll march up those hills. They don't have any artillery support. They didn't bring any siege artillery, and the artillery which 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 they did bring is black powder. So the, those those cannons are knocked out because the Spanish see them coming. They spot them aside, aren't they? They, they, they not also tell the Cubans they don't need them. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The 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 Cubans who have fought for three years mm. uh, are just they're not they are used as not even as reconnaissance troops. Uh, they are you know if you can get some information that's great. But basically, we'll get this sorted. And this is what the, this is what the Jose Marti was scared about. Uh, at the end of the campaign, Galixto Garcia, who is the other main commander in the eastern part of, of the island, who is working with the Americans, when it comes to the takeover of uh, Santiago de Cuba, which is the center of the, of the American offensive, he just says, I'm not I'm not taking part anymore. I'm telling my men to go home because you have made it clear that we are not welcome. They won't fly the Cuban flags of independence. It's all stars and it's all stars and stripes. And it's clear from the comments by again by all officers, including junior officers, just simply racist attitudes towards particularly the Cubans. The Spanish they do realize very quickly in both the naval engagement in Santiago de Cuba and in San Juan Hill and in, and at the Caney, uh, is that they've been up against a determined, well-trained, disciplined military force. And they, and, and they allow them all the military honours. They allow them to, to, to the officers to march out with their sidearms. Uh, the Spanish fleet, uh, that sails out from Santiago de Cuba is defeated. Uh, but the prisoners, including Admiral Cerbera, are well treated, honoured as well. So because of the resistance which the Spanish put up, there's respect. Towards the Cuban rebels, there's absolutely nothing whatsoever. And you look, this is what I was saying before about the impact about this conflict. And remember, it's also part of a broader conflict that takes in uh, the Philippines and takes in Puerto Rico. Mm. You can see the line now that goes from 1898 up to the Bay of Pigs. It's exactly the same. There's no idea of allowing political institutions to develop by Cubans and for Cubans, given, also given the vast variety of, of experiences and attitudes within Cuban society. But there's n- never an idea that we can simply allow the Cuban independence movement to fulfill its goals and to allow Cuba to develop as an independent country. And I think that just plagues American-Cuban relations from 1898 up to, as I say, up to the Bay of Pigs and possibly beyond. Mm. Yeah. So obviously you've mentioned a lot of really interesting things that happened during this war and we've talked about technology and the leadership as well. Another factor that seems to be throughout history um, and throughout conflicts, a really important point is the impact of, of illness as well. So what kind of Im- impact do illnesses have on Spanish and, and the Americans? Is there anything that particularly um, causes 
more problems than anything else are they are either of them are either side unprepared for the kind of diseases they would be encountering the spanish suffered and they suffered greatly but they knew what they were getting into because they'd been there for 300 years mm. so you've got yellow fever you've got typhus you've got diphtheria uh, and you've got the black sickness, which is basically just what it says. You end up, your vomit is black and you die from the inside out. Uh, there's nothing nice about it. Uh, in terms of the casualties, you're talking maybe less than 10% mm. directly related to, to, to battles. Mm. The ones that really suffer are the Americans. They have, they do have an idea. Their medical staff are warning them from the start. But because of the logistical problems, they don't have enough medical equipment and medical staff on Cuba from the beginning of the campaign at the landing in Guantanamo Bay. Now, it's one of these, unfortunately, ifs in history. Given the resistance that the Spanish put up at San Juan Hill and El Caney, where they hold up as a total, I mean, on, on, just on, on the Caney where Barra de Rey was, 5,000 Americans, the total force must be about 10,000. If the Spanish reserves in the city of Santiago de, de Cuba had been released, if Schaffner had, as he proposed, pull back his forces about five miles. He didn't actually think that, that he'd won enough to, 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 to hold it. And if the Spanish had just counterattacked, if they just held the approaches to the hills or whatever, the level of illness within the American forces could have forced an American withdrawal. I'm not saying a defeat because I think in the end the result would have been the same, but the American uh, military medical service were saying, look, unless you get these guys out of Cuba and find a place in America that is away from any urban settlement, you have got a plague on your hands. That, that is what you've got. The rate of infection is huge between uh, malaria, yellow fever, the black vomit, uh, between, as I said, uh, diphtheria, typhus, the whole lot. Unless you get these frontline troops out now, you have got a problem. Mm, As it is, General Linares didn't release those those reserves. So it is a case where, given the conditions that these soldiers were, were, were facing, sickness and illness did have a huge impact and could have had an even a, a massive impact in terms of the Americans just saying, we have to we have to pull back for twenty four hours. That twenty four hours would become forty eight, would become seventy two, and it would just it would just have 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 carried on. The result would have been the same, but it would have been much longer than 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 the campaign that that was there. And just simply the huge number of American casualties uh, of men that never saw combat, weren't near the front line, but died through sickness. Still that in World War One, to be honest, with the Americans. But yeah. let's talk about um, clashes. You've mentioned his name already, uh, San Juan Hill. Spanish put up a, a stinking great resistance, but it's Teddy Roosevelt's moment of glory, isn't it? Absolutely. And you can't call it anything else. Mm. 
it was a moment of glory. It is one of those pivotal moments in human history where one person can make a difference. You know, he was, I think it was, Assistant Secretary of State to the Navy, gives that up, uh, forms the Rough Riders, so you're basically, you're a volunteer, you're paying your own way. Uh, I mean, it's all a bit of uh, bravado in a way, but the story is he he hijacks a ship. Because I say the logistical services weren't that great on the American side, so he basically hijacks a ship and takes uh, not even all his force, but he takes some of his force over. So you, uh, so, so on the day of, of the battle, you've got a stalled American attack. That's basically what it is. You have got upwards of 10,000 men that do not know what to do, that are pinned down where the junior officers are waiting for orders and the orders aren't coming. There's nothing coming from Schaffner apart from the general order of attack. And every time any American force moves, and this is after that sort of general advance forward, mm. we're, talk, we're talking about isolated units out of communication with each other, far less the, the American command. And every time they move, they get shot at. They put up an observation balloon at the start of the battle, and the Spanish took their mouses out and shot it. That was it. That was the end of, of the American reconnaissance. Uh, the Spanish sharpshooters get themselves up trees. They've got a whole series of bird calls to communicate with each other. So we're talking about sniping on a very, very effective level. Uh, the artillery has been knocked out. And you are attacking an entrenched enemy position where you can't actually see anything because there's no... There's no smoke from the gunfire. All you know is that every time you move, you are seeing your men being killed and mm-hmm. the casualties are mounting. Now, he's been leading the Rough Riders. He's the only one left on a horse, talking about uh, Roosevelt. Uh, and he's at the bottom of San Juan Hill. And the momentum is changing. And there's, I'll talk about that in just a moment. But he basically draws his sword like Baradere and says, we're going to take that hill. Follow me. And he, he alone heads up that hill. He doesn't know if the rest are going to follow him. You cannot fault on either of the two armies. You cannot fault that level of guts and bravery mm. on both sides. But on the Spanish side, the difference is we can't win. But we're not leaving. On the American side, the last war in history where you could do that without just getting mown down by machine gun fire as well, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. I mean, Mausers are good. Yeah. But but they're not automatic. Now, if if the Spanish had had one automatic weapon up on one of those hills, that also could have changed it. Because we've talked about Teddy Roosevelt, and you cannot deny that the myth that surrounds that man is actually based on fact. You know, it's, you, you cannot take that away from him. Whether or not he should have been there in the first place, but the man had... I mean, that's why he's riding around on a horse in a night at the museum. It's supposed to be that. Yes, it's him. Yes, it's him. <laughs> and that's the way he's dressed. Yeah. And he's... and, and he, there's, Why does he survive when everyone, you know, other people around him had been shot down? But him with his sword, he... he, 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 he 
revives the spirits of its men and they renew the assault. They do have a bit of artillery, and as again back to the to the technology, the Cuban rebels who they've been disparaging do have a dynamite gun, which is a fascinating in itself. Uh, because we've talked about the problem with with black powder, but black powder has a good thing that it won't actually blow up the shell in the in in the barrel. How do you use high explosive to fire a shell and not blow it up? And there was this uh, technology called the dynamite gun, which is you use an explosive charge to to build up air pressure in a chamber, and it's the air pressure that throws the the projectile forward. So that's actually the one piece of artillery that, that the Americans do have, and it is effective against the Spanish uh, defences. But what makes a difference is that, again, talking about leadership on the ground, when you have a general like Schaffner that is not able to direct any battle from even hour to hour, not far less minute to, to, to minute, are the four Gatling guns, they're not considered as offensive weapons. They're considered as defensive weapons. They're there to, to defend the artillery. Mm. Now, the artillery's been knocked out. Uh, so there are four Gatling guns, and I'm not entirely sure who. It may have been the, the commander of the section himself, or someone orders the three of those Gatling guns up to the front line because they're, you know you know the pictures of Gatling guns they're pieces of artillery they're they're on they're on uh, a wheeled carriage and those three Gatling guns are brought up to San Juan Hill and the Caney uh, and they devastate the Spanish defences because they they do traverse although they are hand cranked they do traverse and they simply traverse along the Spanish uh, parapets. And although they you know, say the Spanish defenders have been hidden from the attacking forces, the combined fire of those three Gatling guns means the Spanish cannot put their heads up. This is essentially no like more... the last scene of um, the last samurai, isn't it? This is what happens to the samurai. Yes, yeah, this is it. This is this is a kind of you almost want. One hand it is the twentieth century coming home to roost in terms of military technology, but yeah. technology from the 1860s yeah. being used for maybe the effectively the first and last time before the era of belt-fed machine guns. Yeah. And it just simply means that this, these isolated units, American units, waiting for orders, the officers can say, right, now we attack. Even then, even then, the Spanish will not budge. They will not move. You've got disaster in the Bay of Santiago de Cuba, haven't you? Oh, only the Spanish. And I say that with so much affection and so much love. Only the Spanish could sail a fleet out to certain death and do so with all flags flying and all the officers in dress uniform. And with the leading admiral being gallant to such a degree, you think, Hollywood wrote the script. It's it, words almost fail you. Cerbera is the Spanish admiral who was ordered by the government in Madrid to take the Atlantic fleet out. And if I say what he sent in a telegram, it kind of sums up what he thought. Con la conciencia tranquila, voy al sacrificio. With my conscience at peace, I go 
to the sacrifice. And he says that from the beginning. I am not coming back. They managed to get out uh, <laughs> across to Puerto Rico. Uh, the Americans never really know where they are. And it's a kind of, basically, where do I go? And he gets the Spanish fleet into the harbour in Santiago de, de Cuba. Yeah. And he, and, and he gets there, uh, as, oh, he gets there in June 1898. Now, Santiago de Cuba, it's a fantastic harbour. I mean, it's just, it's impossible to enter and it's impossible to leave. It is the worst place for any fleet that is hoping to attack to to leave from the capital ships can only leave uh one at a time so you can't even get that sheer sort of physical force of the fleet leaving uh to take the americans by surprise the americans are good they 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 blockade all the ports uh very very effectively they do it 24 hours a day they use searchlights as well uh, at night they try and block the entrance using a coal ship called the merrimack which mm. almost does it, but the Spanish, uh, basically knock its engine out before they can, before they can block the channel. But basically they're rats in a trap. Yeah. Uh, so they basically linger there. They send the sailors out to take part in the land battles. They then get the sort of final order. You basically, you have to do something. That's what Thurbera is told. He has a conference with his officers. And they realize, yes, they are going to have to take on a superior force, a much more superior force. Now, Thurbera is a good man. There's no two ways about it. He's got a shit job. You know, basically, this is the full stop to the end of Spanish presence in Central and, and, and South America. And he's going to have to do it with a degree of glory that will save some pride for, for the nation. But he does make mistakes. Bustamante is the second in command, and he dies in the land battle. But before he does that, he says two things. So we're, we are going to have to leave the harbour of Santiago de, 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 de Cuba. Two things. One, we send the two destroyers out first, and they just fire torpedoes. Doesn't matter where. Just a spread of torpedoes, and they just seed panic and chaos in the American fleet. Because torpedoes, even at that stage, are actually more effective than the capital guns. So that's the first thing that he says. The second thing he says, although we've got these armoured cruisers, there's far too much wood in them. Get rid of all the wood, and this will make a huge difference, as as hopefully I can explain. Now, two great bits of advice, and Therbera doesn't take either of them. It's as if he's so consumed with his own doom and honour and this is the end that he doesn't see that actually he could have taken the fight to the Americans. So anyway, uh, steam up. Uh, the Americans, even though, I mean, steam up means you've got to get the boilers up to pressure. That means burning coal, which has been at a premium, but you've got to burn it. And that means that you've got smoke coming out the funnels. The Americans are still largely caught by, by surprise, but he doesn't send out the, the, the destroyers, first of all, and he doesn't get rid of all the wood on board. But what they do make sure is that all the officers are wearing their dress uniform. Mm-hmm. You have to be taken out by a pilot. You can't leave Santiago de, de, de Cuba without a pilot. 
because of the channel and because of the mines that were there. Mm-hmm. And it is, again, it's straight from this idea of Spanish pride and sort of Spanish innate nobleness. And he says goodbye to his pilot because they're coming under fire. He says to the pilot, when can I turn to starboard? The pilot says, Admiral, you can turn now. He says, the Admiral says, thank you so much for your help. I think it's probably best that you leave now. And off goes the pilot. Without one word of tension, panic, fear, or or, or anything. Uh, so the Spanish fleet sails out. And it's basically, it's every man for himself. <sighs> now, these are capital ships on both sides. Yeah. They've got heavy caliber weapons. You know, they've got, they've, they've got cannons at, you know, twi- uh, 21 centimeters. Problem with gun control in the 1890s is that there isn't any. There is no gun control. <laughs> there is no observation. You don't, you, you don't watch for the fall of shot. Uh, you don't try and straddle. It all comes down to the guy pulling the cord on the gun. So, and that's on both sides. So we're talking about a level of accuracy of less than 5%. On the American side, they've got these amazing capital ships, but they can't actually hit anything with them. <laughs> right? But what they do have are the smaller caliber weapons, and they've got a faster rate of fire. And they're still in on, on certainly on the Spanish side. You look at the cruiser Bizkaia, uh, and it's basically broadsides. You've got these fifty-seven millimeter cannons arranged in broadside fashion, i.e., uh, they can't traverse. Uh, very much. They're at the deck level. Uh, and you've got that on the American side too. I'm not sure if any Spanish ships are sunk, but they're all set on fire. And they're all set on fire because they're filled with wood. So it's all these smaller caliber weapons that are impacting on the Spanish ships. And they're causing fires that go out of control. And the Spanish ships within about two hours of leaving, and it's not that they don't fire back, but within two hours of leaving the port, uh, they're, they're, they're all beached, all of them. The whole Spanish Atlantic fleet is lost, completely lost. Cerbera survives. Uh, he's, he, he, he is rescued by his own men. Uh, and as I said before, the, the, the American Navy could not have been more generous in the way that they treated the Spanish prisoners. Although I do find it slightly weird is that within about an hour of losing the whole Atlantic fleet, Admiral Cerbera is sitting down to have lunch with the, with the American admiral. As I say, <laughs> when you talk about Amer- uh, Spanish history, it's always, always a matter of extremes. So, so you've mentioned, Colin, that you, you can see even today, from a direct line from from this war, the Spanish-American War, all the way up to the Bay of Pigs. Um, in a nutshell, what do you think is the long-term impact of this war? In Cuba, I would say it comes down to a half-century of botched-up American presence in the country. Mm. And... Uh, society that was never allowed to develop along its own lines. Mm. So I was, and in the end, leading to 
a strong love-hate relationship between the two countries. That's that's what I would feel. In America, it allowed in the short term massive industrial expansion, the creation of wealth beyond anyone's imagination, and creating a mythology about the early American neo-imperial world, which is based essentially on improving the lots of oppressed people around the world if they will just embrace American democratic systems. On the Spanish side, you have an amnesia that hits in very quickly. Despite all the press and its support towards the Spanish fight in Cuba, it just isn't mentioned. It's just gone. It's it's you've got this massive military and political loss, mm. and yet it's 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 never mentioned. And even today, you'll 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 work hard to find any reference to it, or statues or uh, history books about this incredibly important conflict. At the time, you have a an inward-looking society because apart from the growing North African interests, all of the Spanish Empire is gone. So you have, uh, you do have this cultural flowering with people such as Miguel Unamuno. Mm. You've got uh, the Machado brothers. You've got this incredible flowering of what you can call Castilian poetry. Ie from the centre of Spain, it's that's it's sort of Spanish with extra Spanishness, and it is stunning. It is it, it 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 leads to so much that is good and positive, but on the other hand, you've got a political system that has failed, has 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 completely utterly failed, uh, and no matter how much in this case that the, the prime minister is called Sagasta, and he stays in power. I mean, he's lost Cuba, but he stays in power. Linares, wounded, comes back and continues to ascend in the military hierarchy. Cerbera becomes head of the Navy. So, But despite all that, you've got another example where Spanish civic and political institutions have failed. They have clearly failed in what they've done. They did not support the fight in, in Cuba on behalf of of Spain. And that's going to simply reinforce this idea of turnismo. So one party is in power, then you have another, which on one hand is very democratic, but it's basically, well, we've had our five years, it's your turn now, and then we'll we'll come back in power after five years. Uh, And that creates a complacency that it's all about just taking control of the parliament in Madrid, and you're not addressing any of the underlying problems that are that are growing in Spain. And you've got a military that is still pretty large and is still looking for a role and is still innately conservative. And they've just lost the last imperial possessions. So what do you do with them? And in the short term, you send them off to North Africa. But that is that 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 is is very short term. And I think if we're talking about sort of lines of trajectory that connect different ages. I think the failure 
of the Spanish defence in Cuba. The political failure. You can again draw that line from uh, the summer of 1898 to the summer of 1936 because you've got a military that cannot accept that Spain is no longer an imperial power, that is no longer at the centre of a, a, a strong, vibrant Catholic society that represents eternal values. And they cannot accept that the world is changing around them. And they've got evidence that you cannot trust the politicians, quite clear evidence that, that you cannot trust them. So I think for each of the countries involved, the long-term effects were different, but all of the long-term effects were extremely negative. Colin, once again, it's been an absolute joy to have you on talking about Spanish. Thank you. Bring so much passion to it. And every time you turn up, you just blow us away. Um, which is why we keep having you back. You're <laughs> our Spanish correspondent now. That was outstanding. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. I always enjoy it. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Elena and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. When our guests join us to talk about their work in their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.